Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. And readers and listeners, did I say that? Um, today on our show, we are going to get right into a new show that we've had gone on for a while called Reading Parting the Waters. This is Reading Parting the Waters, episode 003. I'm here with my friend Gabe, and we've actually gotten some letters. I want to get into those and explain why we're doing this show. And one of the letters, I think people like the first two episodes, uh, but some people didn't. We got a letter from Glenda in Paulding, Ohio, that said, First off, I want to thank you for attempting to tackle this book. However, I don't think either of you should be speaking into a microphone. Um, Paul, sometimes you stumble over your own words and you do poor enunciation. Come on, learn how to talk. And Gabe, where's your accent from and what's up with your breathing? Sorry to be negative, but I appreciate you bringing attention to this book. I can't find the book on tape and my library does not have it. So I will at least give you some credit there. Um, Gabe, thoughts on that letter? Well, I mean, I can only say that I hope to keep breathing as long as possible (laughs) and the people of... Paulding, Ohio, will have to, uh, you know, suffer through it, I suppose. They will have to suffer through it. So who are we? Why did we pick this book? We covered this before, but we got another letter that said, I don't understand why you're doing uh, Parting the Waters. Um, And what's your credentials? So here's my credentials. My credentials are, I am a history major. (laughs) from the University of Pittsburgh. I have a master's degree. I'm a nurse practitioner. I worked for SEIU, a labor union, for six years. Um, And I like history. I... What else? What what else do I... What else are my credentials? What else cred do I have? Mm, Anything else? I read a lot, I guess. And then Gabe... Oh, I went to Shaler High School. I'm I'm a white guy. I'm middle-aged. I have two kids. I went to Shaler High School, and um, that's not the best high school. It's like right in the middle of the road, I guess. Gabe is from Indiana. I'm going to do his bio. He is a dear friend of mine. He went to, I went to Pitt. He went to Georgetown. Um, me and Gabe are nothing alike in a way. I like Metallica. He doesn't like them. I like baseball and sports. He doesn't like that. Um, he doesn't ride a bicycle. He doesn't look like me. Um, why is he here? <laughs> All right. What's what else? Is, okay, your bio. Well, um, I mean, really add, uh, I guess, diversity to this conversation. You could say by not being Paul Cooley. Um, no, but I mean, on on let me cut to the root of the question here. I don't know how we're licensed to talk about this book, except as people who take the history seriously and take a great interest in it, and think that. Trying to understand social movements is important for what we make of our home, what we make of this country, what we make of this world. So that's what I'm in it for, and sort of bringing my interest in organizing and politics and life in America and trying to make sense of it. Agreed. And, you know, I started this project as a let's uh, do this book club together and let's record it. And Gabe's a smart guy and I'm not dumb. So maybe people enjoy us talking about it. And that's why we're doing it. So sorry, Glenda, if you don't like it. Uh, we are now going to get into anything else you want to cover on that. And, you know, we're a little diverse because we don't like the same music. There you go. Although we like Billy Bragg, I guess. So th- th- this next chapter. Thelonious Monk, you're educating me and I'm into it. Oh, right. Yeah. And he's starting to like some jazz that I like. So chapter four is a little bit of an odd chapter. It's called The First Trombone. I think it's strange how he wrote this chapter because there's it's like half the bus boycott. Like Maybe it's not strange, but we're going to get into it right now. Ready? So in this chapter, we're going to say I like to do these teasers. Somebody said they like the teasers. What does MLK adopt from his dad to help the church increase revenue? We're going to learn about that. We're going to learn um, what character, this is one of my favorite things, that uh, Branch writes about that offsets psychopaths, a notch in human in humanity's balance sheet. Do you remember that? Remember that quote about the psychopaths? Don't say it. Okay, you can say if you remember it or not. I um, don't, to be honest. I'm, okay. I'm now well, exci- when he, excited. When he, when he said it, I, it was the first time that I kind of chuckled to myself and said, Branch isn't that boring. He's not boring as a good writer. Then you get... Um, who should get credit for initiating the bus boycott? This might be some controversy. Me and Gabe might disagree. Uh, and then, who is the greatest Lutheran of the 20th century, in my opinion? Now, I don't know all Lutherans, but there's a guy in this chapter that it comes across as pretty cool. So, shall we start? And and also deeply uncool. 
Hmm. Mm. Okay. It's a dialectic of coolness. Okay. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I know. What you, I. I think I see what you're getting at. So, let me move my microphone. Oh God, this is gonna make a noise. Okay. I promise we're gonna get to some action about the bus boycott stuff, but we gotta get into King's career first. So we leave off, and this is where Branch does his like novel writing. You know, Johns. Remember Vernon Johns, the guy that was the the pastor of Dexter. They meet up in Atlanta, and they're driving down to Montgomery. It's a four-hour drive. Apparently, they didn't have MapQuest or Google or whatever. Who knows? Oh, joke. Sorry. Um, so they're listening to opera on the way down, which they both love. John's is going to go preach at uh, First Baptist Church, Ralph, where Ralph Abernathy is, who we don't really know about much at the time when, when Branch is writing this, but in the book. But it comes out to be kind of MLK's sidekick. Is that a bad way to write? You know, refer to him. We're going to learn more about him later on. But would you say that's well? They become they become fast friends, and it seems that Abernathy sees things in King that he's compelled by and attracted to, but also contrast with him. Right? Yeah. I like the part where the two of them are later described as Mister Rough and Mister Smooth. Right? Abernathy and King as a pair of friends who sort of complement each other in some ways. Yes. Yes. So they actually have dinner together, John's MLK and Dexter. And I like this little scene where uh, Abernathy makes this joke and says, you know, the difference between Dexter and First Baptists is that at my church, First, First Baptist, you may talk about Jesus, you may preach about Jesus, but at Dexter, they would prefer you not mention his name. Everybody laughs. And then Abernathy goes on to say, uh, they would prefer you talk about Plato or Socrates or something like that. And uh, I think we talked about this earlier, but this is the the idea that the more of the intellectual philosophical uh, element of Dexter, right? Uh, and then Abernathy goes on to make fun of John's at this meeting, just hi- highlighting the watermelons being sold uh, during like a church reception or whenever some prominent uh, d- uh, black doctor was having a, a wedding for his or for his daughter. Um, and then Abernathy makes fun a little bit of MLK saying like, hey, man, I remember the first time I met you. You know, we saw you preach. It was such a great, a great sermon. I was there with my girlfriend and then uh, I wanted to go on another date with her or something. And then the next thing I know, she was walking down the street with you. <laughs> and it kind of, you know, makes uh, King a little bashful, but, you know, kind of pointing that he was a ladies man, I guess. So at this point, King is thinking about his career. He's still in Boston, remember. So he's thinking about going to Dexter, but he's getting his uh, degree in divinity. Is that right? He, he's talking to his friends in the Dialectical Society about what to do. He's thinking about actually becoming a, a teacher at Morehouse. There's a possible job opening there. And then I don't know if we mentioned this last time, but Chattanooga, Tennessee position is a possibility. He actually goes down there and preaches. He does like a practice sermon for them doesn't go that great and then the dexter guy nesbitt remember he's like the office manager or like the business manager he wants king he's like listen i got a job for you you, you'd be great here he ends up uh coretta's like you know i don't really want to go to the south i like what's going on up here she's a great singer she's getting solo time at different churches up there um and she's not really keen on going down but anyways uh nesbitt offers him 4200 a year. This would make him the highest paid uh, pastor in Montgomery. And so he takes it. He goes down. Um, then Warren, or uh, not Warren, Branch puts a little context here. Do you find it annoying when Branch brings up Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe and and uh, the Pledge of Allegiance? He says, like, under God is inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance. This is 1954-55. It's 54. It's 54. It's very important. 54. But he'll, like, throw this in every once in a while. I, I feel like there are two things happening that are um, somewhat useful. Um, one is that you have a little bit of a gauge on sort of what's happening in, in the world. Yeah. And he'll come up with things that give you a little bit of perspective on what's happening with King and the movement. So, for example, uh, there'll be trouble stirring in Montgomery, which, of course, we're here to read about. And then it'll be the president has in, or the postal service has increased the cost of the staff right. by one penny. Yeah, yeah. 
and that's actually hot, that's on the top fold, and the development in Montgomery is on the bottom fold. So it it, it gives us a, I mean, when you read that, you sort of I don't really need to study how the postage rate is uh, uh, or you increasing. know Joe, but yeah. when you get to the end of the story or the end the end of the, these two chapters and king is on the cover of time magazine yes and, and being covered in the new york times and so forth and you're like oh something is happening here that this you, you can sort of see how this story has exploded and how king has could have grown as a public figure, so that's it's helpful usually in, only in that, in that way. It's only a sentence or two that he usually does this little like, "This is what's going on in America." Marilyn Monroe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. This is what's on the radio. But what's most important right. about this, and I, I'm going to call it BVB. That's how what we call it in our family, um, Brown v. Board of Education. Is it the most important Supreme Court decision in the United States? The answer is yes. Do I have to yell at? <laughs> okay, maybe and, and not. Simultaneously, no. I thought it was totally fascinating that Voice of America and the overseas radio and it uh, are blasting this out to the world, but news outlets in the United States are burying it or not even. Very good, it. Gabe. He's stealing from my script. So what? Ha- what? What? Um, uh, Branch says is the most important. What I say most important cases. Earl Warren. Uh, and the, the it's eight to nothing. Eight to nothing is crazy to me. Because this is ending, what is it? It's ending school segregation. I went to Shaler High School. The one thing I learned, I had a social studies teacher that said, like, this is the most important because this is where everything kind of starts to end uh, desegregation in the civil rights movement. It's extremely important. And the way I was taught it in Shaler High School, and almost the book kind of mentions this, that it kind of comes out of left field. I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure there was precedent and things moving in that direction anyways. But the national media is kind of dumbfounded, as Gabe says. They're not really excited about this, but I think because of Soviet Union and we want to be pro-freedom and all that stuff, the U.S. is like, hey, hey, look, we're great. We're great. We're against segregation. This is what's happening. Um, but it's not really a big national story. So um, so that occurs in May of 1954. September 4th, 1954, King – oh, this is funny. They say this is the kind of insight you're not going to get on another podcast. Um King King's coming out a little strong here. His first his first uh, crack at the pulpit. This guy, I mean, the audacity. You want to talk? He comes in. He comes on real strong. He gives a great speech, I believe. And then he he kind of what do you takes the bull by the horns? He says, "Listen, uh, the the authority rests in me. Um, it descends from the pulpit to the pew. I'm going to be the leader of this church. You know, yes, we have oversight and church democracy, but listen, I'm in charge, and we're going to have different clubs." This is the uh, he's going to steal or, or, or do the, the dad club of everybody uh, is going to be in a month club on your birthday and you're going to raise money and you're going to give the church a hundred bucks every year on its anniversary from your club. OK, so that's where he's being a little bold, I think. And he's the way Branch writes about this is the church members are like, whoa, buddy, we're used to having a little more say so in our preachers. You are kind of wanting to have so much authority um, but he's very organized as well. He has people's names that he wants to be on. I think here's the two important parts. The Political and Social Action Committee, and he wants also the remote membership in the NAACP. And voter registration. And, uh, I'm just going to say that. I like how you're on point. Very good, Gabe. You can tell you read. And he wants everybody to be registered to vote. And, um, okay, so this is great. And then this is where, uh, like, I'm going to be less hard on King for being boast for whatever or how great he is this is where i think it's cool he says he wants deacons to be assigned 25 members who live near him i love this i love this i love this because this is organizing this is how the mechanics of this works branch isn't really he mentions it which is great for him but like how could you this boycott and everything else this is like a phone tree or really being tied in and so where he got that whatever so he's very organized, and he recommends I, these. Committees. I don't think it's a mystery where he's getting this. He's getting it from his father, right? That in in our last episode, I was talking about the study of theology and going to divinity school uh, and going to Boston, all part of, and 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 even picking up um, Newber's uh, philosophy. It's all part of King defining himself in opposition to his father. But now that he's a pastor, he is taking the pages out of Daddy King's playbook, and he implements it masterfully. Well, the finances stuff, definitely, because he says he wants to, like, there's too much cash floating around. we got to go to checks. Hold on one second. 
somebody might be coming into this podcast. The finances are, are more modernized. He doesn't. He wants to have more say so over over uh, speaker fees. Um, but th- you know, this is a bold move, and the church accepts it. So they're like, "Yep, we'll we'll, we'll go with this." So Branch then writes about how he, this he's still working on his dissertation up in Boston. You, <laughs> uh, he's waking up every five five thirty every morning. To, to work on that. Then he's going to the church to, you know, supervise improvements to the building or do funerals. He's g- getting involved in the NAACP and he's preaching a ton. He's taking trips to Boston. Things are going very well. Members are happy with King and can I linger there for a second? Uh, let me just say one thing Go and, ahead. and hold your thought. Um, Cause this is what I like about King as a person. Uh, he, he says that, you know, he looks people in the eye Ask them how they're doing, usually ask follow-up questions, knows about their family, like the small things. He's not some goofball selling veggies. Like, he has a real personal connection. And sometimes people, that's hard for people to do, and sometimes it's easy for people to do, I think. And it sounds like this just comes naturally to him. The point you're making about being able to interact with people and ask how they're doing I, th- I also thought was really important. It's what I wanted to say here. And I, I want to connect it to something else which comes up, which talks about King, now that he's the pastor at, at Dexter, starting his career, uh, Branch says, near the pinnacle of both the black church and the white church. He's uh, in a networks because of his uh, time in Morehouse and his uh, sort of lineage through his father um, connected to, to leaders in the National Baptist Convention, but also because of his background um, at Crozer. He's got these interactions and connections and, and study with uh, white liberal Protestant theologians. But on top of that, he has this ability to connect with people in the pews, mm-hmm. most of whom are laborers, most of whom are domestic workers. They're working class black people who don't have the privileges that he has, but he has an ability to engage them to win their respect because he treats them in turn with respect. And that's, I think, really helpful to see laid out here before we get into the bus boycott because the class lines that that show up in the movement um, both before and after the bus boycott are really interesting. And I think that you get a picture of, of King as someone who really is gifted at being able to engage and move all sorts of people within his community. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, he's a likable guy, you know, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but he gets elected as a president of the Crozier or Morehouse. I forget at one point. Um, furthermore, he, when he's doing this dissertation, he emails Paul Tillich, who's a, uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that. He emails Paul Tillich, who's like a contemporary of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, they didn't have email back then, guys. So, and, and, and Tillich actually mails him back, uses snail mail and says, I don't have email. But, uh, and he was hoping he would get some help on his dissertation, but he doesn't. Um, and Branch talks about how when he's preaching, there was a little bit of a critique this is why maybe Dexter was a good fit for him because he was not a God man, which I find funny, meaning that he did not dwell on salvation or describe like heaven and things like that, but they loved his passion and he was a controlled preacher. Branch says, you know, he never shouted, but he preached like someone who wanted to shout. And this gave him an electrifying hold over the congregation. Uh, One more thing before we take a break. And that is, Interestingly, Dad King's still involved in his life pretty heavily, and he's balancing his checkbook, not because King's a dum-dum or anything like that, but because there's no black banks in Montgomery. So he's kind of still, you know, somewhat involved uh, for because of racist reasons, you know. Um, Any other comments before we get to March 2nd, 1955? No, that's good. Let's go forward. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. We're going to get into some action. We sh- we're going to play the Miami Vice theme here. Um, dun, 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 dun. Okay. We're not really doing a break. March 2nd, 1955. It's my sister's birthday, by the way, March 2nd. A handful of white people are trying to board this bus on Dexter Avenue 
bus driver saw a white section was full of whites, and there was a Negro section uh, in no man's land. The buffer zone was full of black people. So the, the driver turns around and says, you got to give me those seats. He says this to four black women, and two of them moved. Two pretended not to hear and just like kind of stare into the middle distance. I love this. Bus driver pulls over, and they have the authority to act as like policemen and like arrest people, I guess. But he uh, he gets a policeman. No, he he pulls over. He gets a policeman on the street, and he cajoles like a black guy to get up and move. But this one lady, young woman, is not budging. She's a feisty young high school student, and her name is the listeners probably don't know. It is you think it's somebody, but it is Claudette Colvin. So she defends her right to sit in no man's land. She's so cool. Love this woman. Um, sits. She's like, I'm not getting up. Another white woman says, if they, if she defies the police, they're going to take over. Oh, my God. Okay. So Colvin's like getting mad. She's getting upset. She's crying. They drag her off the bus. She's screaming. They put her in handcuffs. And, you know, this is starting to be a big deal now. This is a... Uh, any thoughts? Want to talk? Well, let me let me hold on. So this goes to the, just to, sorry to cut your cut, steal your thunder here. So the newspaper puts this out. It's like, well, we had an incident, and those police officers they handled it beautifully. Beautifully. Sorry, I can't talk. African Americans are kind of upset that they're arresting a high school girl and you know handcuffed. So. Now we got to get into Edie Nixon and Clifford Durr. So Edie Nixon and Clifford Durr, these are two important people we're going to talk about in a second. They start talking about, okay, is this a case we need to push forward and, and try to make a big deal of? And Gabe, thoughts? It's a great entry point to the sort of rising action because in some ways it's just an ordinary everyday example of institutional racism in the South, that you have Jim Crow, you have someone who wants to fight back and stand up for herself, and the organs of the state, from the bus driver to the police, go into action, uh, just another day for them, and the newspaper doesn't take it all that seriously. But meanwhile, here is this network of people who are organizing and preparing and looking for a chance to take this on. I think it's a great sort of entry point, all, all of which are in place, by the way, both the day-to-day -day injustice and this network are in place before um, Martin Luther King is established as a leader. Yep. And let's get into uh, these two characters, Nixon, which Branch does a little background on. And when I first was reading about Nixon, I watched the, the, the Eyes on the Prize, which I highly recommend. The first episode, you could just watch that. 20 minutes of it's about this boycott. And Edie Nixon comes across as... Uh, I don't think he comes across well. But then when you read this book, he's so awesome. He's so cool. He's a total American hero. I mean, he's an American hero in, in that one too, but um, he does a ton. So Nixon's a railroad porter. He's a union guy. Uh, Branch says he's big as a, what does he say? Fist as big as eggplants egg and a cool black face. And then Dorr, Clifford Dorr's a white lawyer, Rhodes Scholar. This guy's got a fascinating back, background. Calls him part of like the Alabama gentry or part of that. Like that's how he presents himself. Nixon was president of the Am Alabama branch of sleeping car porters, a union founded by A. Philip Randolph, who Nixon worshipped and all Americans should worship Randolph. Um, he's a titan of uh, the labor movement, of racial justice struggle, and he's kind of that bridge between, we could do a whole show on Randolph, it's too much. Anyways, Randolph fought the Pullman Company for like 12 years before winning recognition as the first major black trade union. Super awesome guy, should be a saint. Branch says Randolph at this time was an old lion, tall, white-haired, dignified, speaking elegantly with a slight British accent. And Nixon was a homespun Alabama copy. And then in Montgomery, he was the guy that people would go to, black people would go to, to try to get out of a jam. He was famous for knowing every white cop, white judge, you know, government clerk. And while he wouldn't get anything close to justice, he was usually able to get some sort of help for people. He was kind of like the way I look at it is like the town's black grievance chair. Um, that's it. That's exactly what I was thinking. He's and he, the, he's, he, he's the shop steward. And then what I don't like about the criticism of his is like, he wasn't like, I don't know if he was college educated, but people sniped at him for that. And I don't think he had the most cool presence, but dude, he's awesome. Awesome dude. 
the show he's going to get. Our show should have like, um, I don't know, bonus points or something. He's awesome. So he's a cool dude, in my opinion. Clifford Dorr, another cool guy. Brain truster of the New Deal. Hold on a second. I, somebody's texting me. During the show, it's not appropriate. <laughs> could be, could be a, oh my God. an email from a Vernon yeah, Johns, uh, perhaps. Yeah, um, it's not. So, uh, Clifford Dorr, brain truster of the New Deal. 1930s, FDR, New Deal, okay. He was friends with LBJ and Lady Bird, related to Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black. He resigns his position from the FCC Commission due to um, loyalty issues during the Truman times. I'm guessing this is anti-communist stuff, and he thought it was unprincipled. Him and another New Dealer, Aubrey Williams. Uh, these are two, I guess, liberal New Dealer dudes. They sponsor the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, which is going to be important. For for more than 20 years, Highlander was this unique workshop of like social gospel, uh, a place where blacks and whites could mix freely. Uh, it was founded by Miles Horton, and it had on its board uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Norman Thomas, who was a socialist that ran for president, and then uh, Pastor Fosdex was on it. Um, Dorr thought it was a great institution. This was a great place for, to help, you know, for civil rights and Americanism, whatever you want to say. Uh, and, but some people thought it was like a freakishly communist thing. Like what's these black and white people getting together for? This is crazy. Um, one of Joseph McCarthy's henchmen, you know, Joseph McCartney's the big anti-communist. He accused Dorr on TV of being a communist during one of these trials, Door lost his temper. He's on the cover of New York Times. Um, and Door's wife backs him up. And they're both, you know, now marginalized living in Montgomery. Back to CC, Claudia Coleman. Any comments on Door? Well, you're right. Or we, Nixon. We could say a lot about Nixon and, and Door. I, I, let me just. And we will, because they're, they're not going away. I'll, I'll just say two, two things quick, quickly. So on, on Nixon. I, we'll see more about what he can do and how he can lead and how he can um, challenge people. And then also how his sort of class position as someone who is still working on the trains as opposed to someone who uh, lives in this uh, sort of elite class of, of ministers, how that's going to cause him to be estranged. I, he's a really important example of how Trade unionism can lay down this um, framework that all sorts of things can be built on. Yes. I mean, he's super, yeah, super important. And, and Dora is interesting from a, a different perspective because I th like when you lay out his, his resume, as you do, um, someone highly educated, accomplished from a well-to-do white family in Alabama and also uh, as, a, as a younger person at, at the, in the brain trust of the New Deal – you really can't picture a better positioning for power and, and, and privilege in, in democratic politics than that, except for the fact that he gets on the wrong side of the anti-communist era in the late 40s and early 50s. And so uh, by the time he's sort of part of this story, Branch is describing him as a sort of like threadbare, marginalized figure because he... I, at least here, there's no discussion of him actually being a communist, except that he has refused to go along right. with the, the sort of Cold War framework for politics, and that means he has to be pushed to the margins. Uh, but it means that he's on the ground uh, instead of in Washington D.C. He's with E.D. Nixon, strategizing uh, in the right place at the right and time. And E.D. Nixon is like working as a railroad guy, like taking trains all the time. Like they're so different. But these guys are working together, which is so cool, you know. Right. So let's get back to Claudette Colvin. So he reaches out or he he tries to negotiate, actually, with uh, the law, I guess. To, hey, let's have a more humane segregation. Let's eliminate this no man's land. Let's be more courteous. We, you know, uh, and the police chief was kind of like, OK, with it. Yeah, let's talk. But the gump, but the bus company lawyer is like, uh, uh, we can't do that. We can't have like a more humane segregation. You can't have people uh, getting up and moving around. And you're going to see this is going to be a problem later on. Um, if we can't have white people standing up while black people are sitting, because this is going to violate the segregation law. Um, so Claudette's found guilty. 
And Fred Gray, by the way, uh, he is a new lawyer and kind of working as a understudy is the wrong word, but working with door. He's a, he's a black guy. Um, he wants to press this forward and black leaders, including MLK and other preachers, uh, were not sure this was a great case. CC was immature, prone to breakdowns and outbursts of profanity, which is why I like her. She should be screaming and yelling because it's ridiculous. But unfortunately, that's not going to work in a court of public opinion. And we learn that she's pregnant. And then we learn she's pregnant. It's ugh, hard to get behind an un- unwed mother, you know, um, particularly at that time. So, I mean, it's it's shameful, but you can see yeah. the strategic calculation they're making. And I think that lawyers and social movement strategists to this day are trying to find, whenever they're thinking about bringing a case to change legal precedent, they're trying to find a candidate uh, for a plaintiff who's going to be as effective and sympathetic as possible, both in court in front of judges and in the newspapers and in the public realm. And it's hard to disagree with them yeah. that any sort of yeah, explosive pregnant teenager right. is going to help them um, move the courts or, or organize their own community. It's just sort of cold, I think they get cold, their, cold but true It's here. cold but true. I think they get their fine like lowered or something, but they, they just don't go forward. King then meets, uh, he gets more involved in the NAACP. He meets Rosa Parks, and uh, people probably don't know who she is. But she's a, she's a secretary of, um, of the NAACP. She's a seamstress at a department store. Uh, and then she makes extra money on the side, like sewing and stuff. Uh, she came into the NAACP through E.D. Nixon, super important dude again. And he was the local president for a while. Uh, Parks was also on the Women's Political Council, which uh, we never get a great definition of that. It's like a, a black women's group right it's it's the the women's committee of of the local naacp and i think most of the participants are educated women Mm -hmm. are um like uh, robinson who we'll talk about probably soon uh, is a professor Mm -hmm. but uh parks is a working class woman she is working in a department store her husband is a barber but she has this really profound commitment to the movement um, and is a close collaborator with Nixon. Yeah. And she, he he describes her, you know, we all know what Rosa Parks looks like. He says she wore rimless spectacles, spoke quietly, wrote and typed faultless letters and never been known to her lower, to lower herself to factionalism. And this is why I respect her because that's hard not to do when you're involved in these political organizations of taking sides and, you know, Uh, and then here's from the beginning of the show here i'm going to bring this little funny quote up so he uh branch says she's a tireless worker and church girl of working class station and middle class demeanor rosa parks was one of those rare people of whom everyone agreed that she gave more than she got and then here we go her character represented one of the isolated high blips on the graph of human nature offsetting a dozen or so sociopaths When I read that, I laughed out loud because Branch is not really a funny writer, but I thought that was him trying to be funny. Like, this woman is so great that, you know, in in, in the grand scale of humanity, she makes, raises us, raises us up, up, up a little bit. In, in, in the, in and it the, seems like it's true. It's true. And and also in that, you can see how um, Nixon and Durr see her and say, oh, well, she's a, everything that um, our alternatives are not because... Uh, educated people are going to see her and respect her. And the working class, which is the great majority of the black community, are going to see themselves in her as well, right? Because she's a working woman. Yep, yep. So so uh, uh, there was a, the buses are still segregated. Um, police arrest another woman. And this is a woman that refused to give up her seat to a white person. And it's Mary Louise Smith, and sorry, we don't have much more information about her, but that was just not going to happen. Her dad was a drunk. She lived in like a, I guess they said a clapboard shack. Nixon's like, even Nixon's like, we're not going to, this is not going to work. We can't have her. Um, and then the Women's Political Council correctly said her shortcomings should be irrelevant. <laughs> I want to start screaming because they're totally right to the principles of this case. Um, but yeah, just, it's not going to work. So. 
we're at a. And I, I, I should bracket my comment earlier about how it was probably cold, but true that they had <laughs> yeah. to move on. It is, of course, two men making these yeah. executive decisions yes. over the heads of the women's went, committee about which yeah, woman is going to be yeah, which woman is going to be the plaintiff. Yeah, so. I mean, so it's not entirely unproblematic. So okay, King uh, Coretta, King's wife has baby, Yolanda. And then King's thinking about running as the head of the NAACP. I think this is actually funny. He could write this in a funnier way. But, you know, Coretta's like, no, I don't. That's you're going to be too involved. I don't want you doing that. And Nesbitt's like, don't. That, we just want you to be here. <laughs> you know, just our pastor. It's like, yeah, little do you guys know what's what's going to be happening with this guy's life soon. Um, I, I, I like this setup, though. I mean, obviously, you know. You could say Branch is taking his sweet time getting to the action, but it is worth noticing. So he's he's a young man in his mid-20s. He has a plan. It's to be a pastor for a while and then to be a theologian at a university. And he never gets to do that, really. Right, right. He doesn't really get to be a church pastor for all right. that long, and he never gets to be a professor. All right, we're going to take just a short little break here, and then we're going to get to some action. Now it is December 1st, 1955. Thursday's important. Dun, 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 We're getting into the, bu- the bus boycott. Okay, I gave it away, but I'm so excited. Okay, Rosa Parks style. Here we go. So the bus is full. 26 blacks on it, 14 whites. Um, the bus driver sees a white guy up ahead. He's got to get the entire row that like no man's land vacant. And Parks is like, uh-uh. I'm sure she didn't say it like that, but um, she's she said, I'm not in the white section. Because she's not! Am I going to... Okay. I don't want to, like, have this... My cue's too loud and it's distorted. But she's not, okay? She's in the no man's land. So, like, the way the bus is de- de- designated, the seating, there's the white section. And then right behind it is this no man's land where black people can sit. Unless it's full, they have to get up. It's so preposterous. Okay. So, the driver's like, I have the, po- the police power to enforce segregation. And she spoke so softly that if the bus was off, like, you couldn't even hear. If the bus was running, you couldn't even hear what she was saying. Um he took her to the station, booked her, fingerprinted her, incarcerated her. She called her mom. And who did her mom call? E.D. Nixon. Again. This guy. The shop steward. God, the shop steward of the city. So Nixon calls Fred Gray and Durr. And Virginia Gray, who's also just so cool. Like, she's just like, in the Eyes on the Prize thing, she's like, comes across as, uh, like me, appalled at segregation and everything like that. So I think Virginia Clifter and Nixon all go down a pair of bond, or maybe just Nixon and Durr. And both Nixon and Durr are like, oh my goodness, this could be the case. This could be the case. She's great. She's great. Raymond Parks. <laughs> this is also why Rose is so cool. Raymond Parks, her husband, is like, no, 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 no. She's like, white folks will kill you, Rosa. No. And Rosa's like, if it can make a difference, count me in. My God, opposing your husband? I mean, okay, so she's... And, and just to spare a thought for for Raymond Parks, he's not crazy. He's not wrong, yes. He's not wrong. Like, he is not wrong. Like, we're going to get into this guy, uh, Gates. Am I saying his name right later, which is also crazy? And we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of the terrorism which yeah. will be appearing in the story shortly. So that Nixon gets organized, and this is where I get excited. It's one of my favorite parts. So he contacts his friends at the Women's Political Council, including... My favorite character, Joanne Robinson. She's a divorce press professor. Whatever, who cares if she's divorced? She's an English professor at Alabama State. She's one of 12 kids. Branch said she moved from Cleveland, but I actually found that that's not true. I think that's not... She's from, like, the South. Um, maybe she went to school there, but... Uh, she served on King's new political affairs committee at Dexter. Again, why King was kind of, you know, organized and smart about these things or how it's so, how beneficial it is. Um, she knew Rosa 
And as soon as she found out about this, like her and her, you know, WPC folks responded like firefighters. This is so cool. She went to the university, um, drafted a protest letter, and then we're like mimeographing it all night, basically saying like, we got to stay off the buses. This is this has got to happen. Um, uh, in another book, uh, David Garrow. He mentions that uh, she tried to address this busing busing situation like earlier, like in 1954, like just by herself. She went to city council or something like this. No man's it wasn't even end segregation. It's like, can the no man's land thing be done with? Can we just sit there and not have to get up? And what do they say? The city officials? No. So this this has been like an issue for her for a while. Um, She writes this uh, leaflet. Another Negro. This is what it says. Part of it. Another Negro woman has been arrested in town and thrown in jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus to give it to a white person. Until we do something to stop these arrests, they will continue. The next time it may be you or you or you. Um, so they use the Alabama state mimeograph machines. They're up there all night, stealthily just crafting these uh, flyers to distribute. Robinson calls Nixon. Wait, let me just jump in here. Yeah, go ahead. Here's why it matters that she's divorced, Right. She's a professor at this college. The college is a public institution. Mm. She's using the mimeograph machines and the meeting space at the college without permission to challenge segregation. Yes. And as Branch yeah. points out, this could have been her job. Anyone who was working with her who had a public job could have lost their job. And she, her husband could have said, please don't leave at 2 o'clock in the morning. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have another income, right? She's taking leadership consistent with her activism and her organization going back, uh, as you point out, uh, to uh, earlier attempts to challenge segregation in, in public transportation. But she, she's using her organization. She's u- using her, her intellect. She's the person who can write the letter, who can pull this together and say, let's take action. And she's taking risk with her leadership big time yes that's why i like that he catches that okay yeah good point good point um so robinson called nixon and nixon informed him to inform him what they were doing and he was like yeah do it sounds good to me and he's planning on holding a meeting of black leaders later that day on friday so you know um and later in history not to dwell on this but there is a little bit of a point of contention on who started this boycott or who called for it nixon sort of says it was my idea um i mean whether what what doesn't really matter it's part of what makes nixon a bit of a heartbreaking character to me yeah and this starts to show up at the end of this the next chapter because he is condescended to and marginalized by the pastors by the sort of higher class of, of educated sort of uh, and entitled sort of uh, professionals in the community. He ends up resigning uh, later um, and he's, he's frustrated with King. He's angry. And it may be that he exaggerates his role uh, later to try to uh, redress yeah. what he, he, fear, he feels is his unfair, unfair treatment. Here's what stands out to me, though, in this moment, just without sort of putting all of that stuff, which is will happen later, aside, that the women have met and actually started taking action to organize a boycott, which by all evidence is not what he had in mind, that he's talking about a legal case. Mm-hmm. But what he should get credit for, without a doubt in my mind, is recognizing the good idea of and the, the enthusiasm like do recognizing it. Yeah. the leadership recognizing the organizing and saying yes to the boycott as well as yes to the legal case and as someone that was an organizer and it's one of my skill sets i'm not a great talker as the even though i'm doing a podcast as the listeners have said i'm not a charisma monster and a great talker i sympathize with nixon because he's doing all the legwork the groundwork he's been doing it for years he was the glue that was holding this kind of community together together to some degree so uh, that's but why we've I, also met people in the union who when someone else takes initiative an established leader sometimes says whoa Actually, that's my job. You don't do that. I want to marginalize you. But that's not what he's doing here. Right. He's seeing someone, in this case Robinson, and these women organizing something that he didn't start. 
And he says, go for it, right? Yeah, like he's that, not saying, that's, uh, that's, give that's me all a, the credit. Like, that's good, at, at that's good organizing practice, not bad organizing and he's, practice. And he wants to accomplish the goal. Like, he's, re- he's ready. He's been fighting this his whole life. So, and then he calls King in the morning. <laughs> this is just another little funny thing. Calls King in the morning. We be- don't have to name anyone we've met in the union who does that, by <laughs> oh, the no, way. No. Calls King in the morning for his work. And uh, King's like, hmm, let me think about it. <laughs> it's just like that. Uh, and then King obviously agrees we should have this meeting and talk about it. And, you know, and then, OK, another reason why uh, Nixon is so cool or smart, he calls the advertiser the paper and he says, hey, I got a hot story for you. We Joe's Joe Asbell, like the head editor, says, uh, hey, I, I'm going to meet you in the morning. I'm going to tell you what's going to go on. There's going to be this big boycott. So he meets them before work. He's like up all night and then. Uh, Nixon has to get on the train to do his work thing for whatever, nine hours, 10 hours. But he meets him right before, says this is going to happen. And then this gets put in the paper. Uh, okay, I'm a little lost. Okay, so there's going to be this meeting at the at that night at the Holt Street Baptist Church with among church leaders and WPC folks, I believe. Um, oh, I have to take a little aside from Gabe. He's not going to know this little story, but in the David Garrow book, there's a brief part where the interdominational ministerial alliance, have you heard of this? Branch does not write about this, but he says at the first meeting on Friday that there's a reverend, and this is actually kind of important because there's a reverend Roy Bennett. Do you know him? He's the president of this. Uh, it's going to come back later in a fake news thing where you're going to, you know what that's about. And we'll talk about the fake news thing later. But he says, uh, this made me so up- upset. At the first meeting, this Roy Bennett holds the meeting and he's lecturing on and on and on. And people are literally starting to leave the meeting. And somebody goes up to King is like, this thing's going to fizzle out. I'm leaving. And then finally, thank God, thank God Abernathy takes over. It's like, okay, okay, enough. Okay, let's get, let's get things moving. So, um. They have this meeting on that Friday. Let me pause that. You don't have to be part of an interdenominational ministers committee to recognize that scene if you've been to any kind of political yes. meeting ever. In That's your life. why when I read that out of the Garrow book, I knew you would appreciate it. But I was like, wanted to throw my book across the the, the room, and I was like, thank God Abernathy exists to get this guy out of here because he's Absolutely. draining. So, um, let's talk about. Uh, so this is Friday. I think it's important that it occurs on a Thursday because it just helps with their organizing. So Greats, oh, I don't even know his first name. He's my favorite Lutheran. He hears this news. So he is a white Lutheran guy that comes down to Montgomery and he uh, is a pastor to black Lutherans. So he's a white guy in a black neighborhood, black um, environment there. And he hears about this. And he's like, what is going on? I, I hear about this boycott or something with, you know, somebody was treated unfairly. Let me call my friend. He's like, I'm going to call my friend Rosa Parks. Hey, Rosa, do you know anything about this that's going on? Um, and, oh, yeah, I do. That was me. And he's like, what? So he lectures to his community, says, we are supporting this 100%. And, uh, and then... It turns out that in the paper, there's a headline that says uh, Negro groups ready boycott of bus lines. I think this is in the Sunday edition or Saturday. So this is like perfect because Mary Jo Robinson, by the way, cranked out 50,000 leaflets. And if anyone has any, send it to, send it to me, please. You probably know my address. You're listening. Uh, I want one of these. I want to put it in my house. Um, but she sends out 50,000 of these things. They're, they're leafletting the neighborhood, leafletting everybody. And then it goes in the paper. And there's another little funny thing, unintentionally funny, actually sad and pathetic. Um, this was not the most dominant race story in the paper. Okay. University of Pittsburgh connection here as a grad. So there was a college protest of Georgia Tech due to playing football at the University of Pittsburgh, where uh, it was a bowl game, Sugar Bowl, I don't know. Pitt had one black running back. He didn't even play. He was a reserve. And the Georgia Tech students were so upset that this guy was playing, and they were upset that Pitt had students in non-segregated, like were seated in a non-segregated basis, that the white students were like smashing windows and were like really upset about it. 
Uh, this like upset the governor. And it's like, how preposterous is this? You know, anyways, thoughts on that, Gabe? I know you're a big football fan. Well, <laughs> not at all. Go Panthers. <laughs> um, so did I, did I, they are the Panthers. Did I get there? They, right? they are the Panthers. Okay, good. I just thought it was funny. The University of Pittsburgh connection. So Monday morning happens and the buses are empty. Yay. This is working. Um, I think you, you got the story slightly off because I think Pitt is coming to play in Georgia and the governor of Georgia, because there's an integrated team coming on, on the buses, wants to call off the game. Yes. And that's why yeah, right. the, the students are rioting that they're not going to get a football game. Oh, I think the students you might be are, right. are right, just right. being like we want football. Like oh, exactly. OSU students burning couches for no good reason in Columbus. Oh, you know what? This actually makes humanity. And the, go- the governor is just being an authoritarian. You racist. know what? This is actually a better story for humanity because what that is saying is, at the end of the day, people are less racist and they just want to see football. And the governor, the authoritarian racist governor. So I'm glad you corrected me on that. That's right. As David Cross would say, I've got all these snacks. Somebody yeah. just pick up a ball and play. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, I'm going to blame Branch for being too complicated in his writing. So that's not my fault. <laughs> no, so Branch is great. We love him. So the buses Monday morning are empty. Um, oh, you know what? I got to... This is going to be... If you hear... Um, Weird noises, that's children playing, so I apologize. Okay, so Monday morning, the buses are empty. Clyde Sellers, the uh, police chief. Is he the police chief? Commissioner. He's commissioner, city yeah. Commissioner, yeah. Um, he believes this is due... <laughs> he believes it's due to the goon squads, the, the Negro goon squads. I mean, so dumb. People are so dumb. Um, this is obviously not true, and why this is funny is because... He then says, we need to increase... If you need an alternate name for this podcast, it could be Negro Goon Squads. <laughs> he, uh, he wants to increase police presence to around the bus stops because he thinks these Negro Goon Squads are preventing people from getting on the bus. But what it actually does is prevent people from going near the bus stops in general because they think they're going to be arrested by the police. So good job, sellers. Uh, Nixon, and then the, that Monday, Nixon accompanies Parks when she's convicted. And as she's leaving, there's like 500 people outside the courthouse cheering and they're ready to go. And they got to go. Um, there's going to be this big meeting at Holt Street that night. Okay. So uh, my chronology is a little bit off. So at first, the black ministers meet. Um, and this is with King to keep every in their talk. And it's like Nixon, King. Uh, and there's another guy, Rufus Lewis. He's an activist. Uh, he's a kind of a rival to Nixon. And if you watch Eyes on the Prize, he's a more happier guy. Not as he just like looks like a fun guy. Um, but they've been kind of involved in stuff for a while. King comes late, and Nixon again correctly says, "Guys, we can't keep this a secret. Are you nuts? You know, we're not cowards. They're, how are you going to keep a boycott secret?" And King kind of steps in and says. Yeah, I'm not a coward. I agree. We need to keep this thing. This is going to be public. And uh, Rufus is worried that Nixon's going to be the leader of the group. So he kind of just says, hey, I, we need to have a leader of this group. We need to call ourselves something. Um, I'm going to nominate King to be the president. And everyone agrees with it. King's not very well known, but he's well liked. He's been there for a little bit. And they call themselves the Montgomery Improvement Association. And some think they should suspend the boycott as they negotiate. Oh, my God, what a terrible idea that would be. They have all this momentum, and thankfully they don't. Um, any thoughts on that little scene, Gabe? Well, you can see both the sort of strength uh, and challenge that E.D. Nixon brings to the movement, and you can see how people object to it. He's calling out the ministers for not wanting to put their names to a letter endorsing a boycott and King by both pushing back on, on Nixon, but also effectively agreeing with him uh, ends up uh, setting himself up as the alternative to Nixon as the leader, which is an interesting uh, dynamic in the room. Yes. Yes. Uh, after the meeting, King goes home to tell Coretta, Hey, I'm the president of this organization and we got this church, you know, this, this big meeting tonight uh, at the church. And she's like, cool with it. She's like, well, so be it. This is happening. 5,000 people are there. I don't know how they all fit. I mean, it's huge church. There's people outside. He gives this great speech. 
gives, gives you chills. You can listen to it on YouTube. I was thinking about putting it in here, but it's not the best quality. He talks about being American citizens. We want full citizenship. We are tired of being trampled on by iron feet of oppression. You know, this is a great country. We have the right to protest. We are peaceful. And then um, I like when he says, you know, we're going to do this boycott and there will be no crosses burned at the bus stops in Montgomery. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, he's talking about black people that, you know, we're not going to be violent. He says, there's going to, no white persons are going to be pulled out of their homes and murdered. None of us will defy the Constitution. Um, and somebody, uh, this high, kind of patriotic thing is, I, I forgot about this element of King and the whole movement. And this idea that we want full citizenship, this is an American idea, this is very American, this is like the best country, and we're going to do this. Uh, and he, this is the famous thing where he says, and we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness, righteousness like a mighty stream. The place screams and erupts and, you know, they are ready and ready to do this, you know. And that's how he ends the chapter. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to let you talk in a second. The thing that I want to emphasize is this nonviolence, which we're going to get into, but it becomes like a... Uh, he, he's like saying it every other sentence almost. You'll see if you watch any videos of him. It's a, it's super important that we're always talking about nonviolence and peace. And I love it. It's great because it's like, yes, my kids should be nonviolent to each other too. <laughs> like I just, this should, this should be talked about all the time in society. Um, and then, okay, Gabe. This was a really remarkable way to end the chapter that reading it was electrifying you and it really shows us why as even as a very young man and as someone who who is new to this town he really is the right person to lead so several things strike me here that i I think are important right um so about nonviolence and the contrast with cross burning right he is thinking about a boycott as a strategy which is going to be moral and Christian and, and which black people can lift up. And he wants to, he's, has to contrast it with the kind of boycotts conducted by the Citizens Council or the White Citizens Council, as it's, as it's mainly known, right? Because the White Citizens Council is a, a, a way to economically coerce black people to keep them in their place and to isolate and punish people who speak out against Jim Crow. So he's got to distinguish the kind of movement that he's organizing from that kind of uh, racist coercion to enforce mm-hmm. the status quo of legal power and, and social power in the South. Don't hate people that hate you. But at the same time, he's also embodying the sort of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr idea that we're not liberals hoping to educate our way out of this situation. We're going to coerce our opponents mm-hmm. by taking action. Yes, and you're going to see this in the next chapter where it's like, whoa. And he he connects it uh, marvelously. And it's par- a balance. It's like a balance. Absolutely. It's, such a, it's a- like a razor's abs- edge balance. Abs- ab- absolutely, right? And like you can see with Sellers, who's um, on- the only way Sellers can understand what's happening is like, well, the only way people are staying off the buses, ordinary people, working people, laborers and, and domestic workers, it must be because there are so-called Negro goon squads, uh, <laughs> right, enforcing yeah. it. It's the same way that people talk about the labor movement. The only way people would go on strike is if there were Force. men in leather jackets with you know, uh, brass knuckles trying to prevent them from going into work. But King is able to lift this to a higher level. And it's in part by claiming the national political story of America. He said, we couldn't do this in a totalitarian country. We couldn't do this in a communist country. We're doing this to take the best of America and make it our own. He he really is streets ahead of his opposition in terms of his ability to think this through. And and as we'll see in the next chapter, even very skeptical, jaundiced uh, journalists Mm. have have to recognize that he's not uh, just talking through his hat. He really has thought this stuff through. Very much so, and that will conclude this episode of Parting the Waters 003, and we're going to do Chapter 5 next. 
I would recommend people read, if you haven't read the books or this book, start at page 120. <laughs> you don't have to read that first part. Start at page 120 and just read uh, from there, chapters four and then chapter five, definitely. So we will see you next week or whenever this comes out. Thank you. <laughs>